all my new Francophiles out there. It's Jenny, and this is episode 19 of the Struggling Archaeologist Guide to Getting Dirty podcast. And I'm really excited to be back here today with part two of our French adventures. I hope you all listened to the first episode, which was uh, episode 18 of the podcast, Awesome Bernays Sauce. And uh, so we're going to be continuing our talk about France today. And if you hadn't listened to the last podcast, we're talking about France because I was recently there for a little while. And I just found a lot of things about uh, the French history and culture extremely interesting and exciting. And I thought, why not bring it to you guys and uh, expand the discussion a little bit about my experiences and uh, what I learned about that fantastic country. If you have not been, it's very pretty. I recommend it. There's lots of really yummy food like cheese and bread, which is amazing. And there's really good wine and just in general good times and felicity and nice people. And yeah, so definitely. Uh, What we're going to talk about today on the podcast is the part of my trip that I didn't talk about last time, which was my time in Normandy in the northern region of France, and a little bit about Paris. I was there for two days, and Paris is like this huge, I mean, it's a huge even, it's a thing that is beyond the capacity of me to talk about right now on the podcast, because it would just take forever. So I'm not really going to give you a history of Paris. Um, There's a lot of excellent web resources you could use if you want to know more about it. But uh, Paris was really beautiful and I enjoyed it and there's just so much. It's like, I mean, I don't know, I couldn't even absorb half of what I encountered. (laughs) But I walked around the entire city, uh, yeah, for like two days straight. So I had some really sore feet after that, but that's okay because it was beautiful weather and I think there's no better way to get to know a place than by exploring and walking around. And so that is what I try to do when I'm in a new location. I research and research and research because I'm a nerd like that. And I figure out everything I want to do and the places of historical and archaeological and cultural value that I want to, uh, t- that I want to see. And I try to do that and then I just kind of explore and go off on my own if I am not with a bunch of people. And uh, that's what I did in Paris, which was actually really fun because I got to see lots of things I wasn't expecting. And um, I discovered just craziness all around me. (laughs) So, uh, let's see. Paris, Paris, uh, the most romantic city in the world, they say. Uh, It wasn't very romantic for me, but then again, I was there with my mother-in-law. So, yeah. Paris um, has been occupied actually for... Uh, probably about 10,000 years or so, I'd say. I think um, there were definitely people living in the area as early as 9,000 BC. So, yeah, somewhere around there. Pretty cool, right? Uh, So, ancient times in France, there's a lot of um, Gallic, Celtic tribes all around. And Paris was the seat of uh, a Celtic tribe in the 3rd century BC called the Parisi. And that is where the name Paris comes from, the name of this tribe of people who are living there, Celtics. And uh, Parisi actually in their language meant the working people. And of course, the ironic thing about that is that today Parisians or French people in general are kind of maybe not considered to be perhaps the hardest working people in the world. Or maybe like the opposite of that. So... 
irony. Uh, but anyway, that's where the name comes from. Hey. Uh, Paris and France, of course, were part of the Roman Empire after they expanded out into Europe. And then, you know, there was the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, and there was lots of stuff going on, and it was great, and there was art and science and religion and things of an agricultural nature and serfs and people and fiefdoms and I don't know. Lots of stuff going on. It's French history. Uh, take a French history course. But anyway, uh, I'm not going to talk about Paris anymore. Um, I just wanted to mention two things that I thought were very interesting. One, I would have thought going, coming into Paris and having researched Parisian history before I went that like one of the most popular tourist destinations after the Louvre, which I went to, which was great, of course, um, would be the Place de la Concorde, um, which is this big square uh, in the lineup of the Louvre and the Garden de Tuileries and um, the Champs-Élysées, and then it ends with the Arc de Triomphe. Um, the Place de la Concorde is where the Egyptian obelisk in Paris is located. Uh, and I would have thought this would have been a really big tourist attraction, not, of course, because of the obelisk, but also because um, it used to be called the Place de la Révolution, and in 1793, that was the spot, this was the square, where the guillotine was set up and where um, Louis XVI and uh, Marie Antoinette were um, guillotined to death in front of all of the people of Paris and where the revolution basically took place and uh, where a lot of guillotines took place. <laughs> so I would have thought, you know, being a pretty important part of French history, this would be pretty, a big thing, you know? But I got there and one, there was not a lot of people there Everyone who was there was only looking at the obelisk, and then there's two fountains that are on either side of it, and people were like, oh, it's fountains. Uh, but there was, like, almost nothing that even mentioned the fact that this, the history of the Place de la Révolution and um, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette and all of that. I was like, what is going on? There's, like, one little plate on the ground that says in French, so, of course, anyone who doesn't speak French has no idea what it says, but, uh... There's just one little plaque on the ground that says, oh, by the way, this is the place where uh, <laughs> Louis and Marie Antoinette were guillotined. And so I was just kind of like, oh, that's weird. Like, nobody was looking at it. There's nothing else there that, you know, is telling the, the part of that uh, story of French history, which just was so huge to me coming into Paris, having never been there before. Um, so I was just kind of surprised by that. I don't think most of the people who walk through the Place de la Concorde and go look at the obelisk even have any idea that that is also the place where that they, uh, the monarchs were killed during the beginning of the French Revolution. But anyway, um, that was interesting. I also had a really good time on my journey. I walked up to Montmartre and uh, went to uh, the... Basilica of the Sacré-Cœur. One, I went there <laughs> because this was a, a very famous scene in one of my favorite movies, Amelie. A very famous French film. It's beautiful and sweet and quirky and cute and everybody loves Amelie and blah blah blah. And Audrey Tattoo is amazing. But anyway, there's a scene that they've filmed at Sacré-Cœur and I was like, I have to go there and I have to see where the scene was and where Audrey Tattoo's looking through the telescope at the guy and blah, blah, blah. And 
he's running up the staircase to get to her and uh, I'm such a ridiculous dork um but anyway yeah so Sakura Crow was amazing to begin with and then I was like oh this is really great it's from Amelie but I I had read before I went over there also that Sakura Kur, um, it's it's like it's on a hill. It's like the biggest hill in Paris. It looks out over all of it, and uh, it actually was a very old um, settlement on top of the hill during Gallo-Roman times. And so there's there was archaeological excavations under the church that discovered walls from you know like the third century uh, Roman era, which is pretty cool. And that the name Montmartre has two different meanings in the more recent translation, it means the Mount of Martyrs. And uh, so if you know anything about that part of French history, uh, the Mount of Martyrs was supposedly the place on the top of Sacré-Cœur where uh, there was a saint, Saint Denis, Saint Denis, that's his name. Uh, I am not making that up. His name was Saint Denis, okay. Uh, he was martyred in 250 AD by being decapitated on the top of the hill by the Romans. And he was decapitated for, you know, preaching Christianity. So he basically is the guy who the French worship now as a saint because he brought Christianity to Paris and he was martyred for that. Um, so in one way, the Montmartre is named after him because of the Mount of Martyrs. But it actually goes back even before that, and the words that became Montmartre are actually from the Latin, Mons Marti, which means the Mount of Mars, which is a Roman, <laughs> which was from the Roman occupation. Um, and so in reality, this place that's become this big symbol, it's the, it's the location of a big Catholic basilica that celebrates the life and the sacrifice of this Christian saint is actually based on the Roman pagan <laughs> location, the Mount of Mars, Mars being a Roman god. Uh, I think it's, it's also referred to in another text as the Mount of Mercury, which is another Roman um, of pagan's god. So I just think that's kind of really funny and kind of ironic um, that it's the Latin and the Roman pagan tradition that uh, created the name of the place that became Montmartre, which is such a really big symbol of Christian history for France. <laughs> so there's your interesting lesson in French religious history for the day. And on a side note, Montmartre is a really, really fun neighborhood. Uh, and I walked all around it and it was really cool and I felt very artsy and, and I should have been wearing a chapeau and a eating a baguette out of a bag and smoking a cigarette while I was down there. But I did not, because I don't smoke. But uh, if you want to know um, a little bit more about the very interesting hist uh, history of art and literature in Montmartre, which is this very specific area in Paris where all of the artists and writers and, and thinkers um, of the early 20th century hung out, um, there's a um, there's a lot of different, a couple of different movies, but I would recommend the recent movie Midnight in Paris uh, if you're interested in that history, which is also incredibly fascinating and cool 
and just inspiring. Um, watch Midnight in Paris. Not only is it a funny, quirky, interesting movie, it's a Woody Allen movie, but um, it's an amazing cast and just the stories and the characters that you're going to see in it are based on real people and events that took, that, you know, that were happening there during this time. And it's all very exciting and interesting and beautiful and poetic and uh, wonderful. So watch that movie because I really liked it. It's got Jenny's rating of five out of five stars. Jenny approved. So last uh, episode I told you to watch The Way. I'm going to be giving you movie suggestions apparently from now on every episode. This time I'm telling you to watch Midnight in Paris. <laughs> so anyway, that concludes my talk about Paris. I don't want to talk about Paris anymore. So now we're going to talk about the wonderful region of Normandy in the north of France. Normandy is fine and fair, so Normandy is where we'll go. If anybody can tell me what musical that is from, I will buy you a puppy. No, uh, probably not. I mean, I, maybe I'll save one from a shelter and send it to you, um, if you don't mind, because there are millions of animals that need your help and who... Yes, I would love to save from their little concrete cells and send to you. Just let me know. I will do it. I will do this. Anyway, that was from a musical. And uh, the song is called Normandy. And I sang it when I was in Normandy several times. So, yeah. Remember, a puppy to the person who can tell me what musical that is from. That's a Jenny guarantee. Uh, <laughs> we're going to, let's see, we're going to start off our discussion on Normandy with a very quick, concise history of the Normandy region. And uh, I'm going to start that right now. The historic province of Normandy is now split into the regions of Upper and Lower Normandy. This area is famous for its cows, butter, Calvados brandy, camembert, and apple cider. Not to mention, a long and fascinating history involving Viking invasions, William the Conqueror, and the D-Day landings which marked the Allied invasion of German-occupied France during World War II. This area gets its name from the Scandinavian word for the Vikings, or Northmen, who invaded and settled in the region in the 9th century. But it also has a long prehistoric history involving the invasion slash settlement of many Celtic Gauls in the area during the 3rd and 4th century BCE. They were probably just thrilled to be Romanized when Julius Caesar invaded France in the 1st century. Of course, not wanting the Romans to have all the fun, the Germanics and Saxons also invaded and raided northern France during the 3rd century CE, leading to the withdrawal of Rome in 406 which, of course, allowed the Franks to take control of the area for several hundred years. But really, they were just placeholding it until the Vikings could get there. So basically, until this point, northern France has basically been like a big game of King of the Mountain. But after the Vikings arrive, it finally gets the moniker that we all know and love, as well as a somewhat stable group of inhabitants, the Normans, who are basically mutts of Scandinavian, Saxon, Frankish, and Gallic origin. So the region was made of fiefdom, under the rulership of the Viking leader Rollo, aka Herolf Ragnvaldsson after he allied himself with the Frankish King Charles the Simple in 911. I really love these names. Uh, so, Rollo's descendants ruled Normandy for a time, and then started to think bigger, like England big. 
So William, the Duke of Normandy at the time, happened to be chillin' when he realized that the Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, was going to die with no heir apparent. So William, being a smart lad, cozied up to him since his grandfather's sister, Emma of Normandy, was uh, King Edward's mother. She had uh, King Edward with a guy named Ethelred the Unready. And I'm hoping that didn't have anything to do with the manner of his conception. But uh, anyway, um, William claimed that King Edward wanted the English throne to go to him instead of his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson, who actually did succeed him. So, along with the Norwegian king, Harold Hardrada, Hardrada, however you say it, he invaded England! And there you have it, folks, the Norman Conquest of 1066. This power play was over quickly, culminating in the Battle of Hastings on October 14th, 1066, in which Harold Godwinson was killed, and William, now known as William the Conqueror, claimed the throne of England. And this, my friends, was the beginning of a line of royal English succession that led to the Angevin and Plantagenet kings. Which, I mean, really, in reality, they're pretty much all related, so basically all of English royalty for the most part today. And the interesting thing about the Norman Conquest to me, is that this marks really the beginning of a concrete material and cultural heritage belonging to both Normandy and England. Not to say that they stayed connected throughout the last thousand years, but uh, this for both regions really marks the beginning of modern history for them, even though they both go in kind of different directions at a certain point. Not to overshadow the accomplishments of either people prior to 1066, but you really do get a sense when you're there that everything in these towns is centered around the, their basis in the founding of that period. So when you go to Caen, uh, which is like one of the big, Caen and Rouen are basically the two biggest cities in Normandy. Um, if you go to Caen, you'll see the entire city is centered around the William the Conqueror's castle, which was built there in around the time of the conquest in 1066. Um, it's very much also like how London is largely centered around the White Tower in the Tower of London, which was also built by William the Conqueror in the decade following his invasion of England. And so both of these places, these cities, have this real sense of being tied very directly to their foundation at that specific point in time. Um, not to say that there isn't a, you don't have the presence of ancient history or dark age history in either location. Um, they're both there archaeologically and historically throughout England and France, but it, they're very downplayed compared to everything that happens from the Middle Ages on. And I think that it's because from that point and throughout the Middle Ages is where you get the evolution of the cultures that thrive there today. Um, and so they have the most uh, historical and cultural relevance to people's minds when they're thinking about French or English history and who they are as a people. It really comes back to the founding of that specific cultural movement. So yeah, that's my take on it. Uh, I would have loved to have seen a little bit more focus on the prehistoric and the Roman periods, but they just, one, there just is not a lot of physical evidence of it anymore. You do see in northern France from time to time Roman ruins, but there are not a lot of them. And there are also prehistoric ruins, like the dolmens I was telling you about in southern France. And of course, you'll be familiar with 
all of the prehistoric uh, uh, ruins of England, like Stonehenge and all of the henges <laughs> and, uh, and bur uh, tomb burials and all of this stuff, um, which is great. And it's, it's amazing that there is a prehistoric history there to connect with for people. But if you are talking about the modern culture, they both very much are tied back to this one specific event and the um, everything that sort of came after the conquest of England by William because his descendants are the people who end up ruling England for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's that. Okay, so the interesting thing about uh, being in northern France and its connection to William the Conqueror and the Norman invasion or the Norman conquest is that when I was in Caen and um, that's where his castle is, so of course you have this big um, 11th century castle in the middle of this town uh, which is juxtaposed against all of these very modern buildings. The interesting difference between northern France and southern France I found was that Northern France experienced a lot of devastation during World War II and World War I, so there are a lot of parts of these towns and cities that have been completely destroyed for the most part and have had to been rebuilt in the last 60 years. So you get this um, juxtaposition of extremely old history, uh, architecture, buildings, uh, and ruins alongside this very modern and then in southern France, it did not experience as much devastation. So every town you drive through is very uniform in its look. It's all kind of coming out of the same era architecturally and uh, time period-wise. So I thought that was just really interesting that here in Caen you have this 11th century castle in the middle of town. And then like two blocks away is this big modern shopping district. So that was very weird. But that's just how it is, because half of the town was destroyed, um, as I, was a lot of the other towns in northern France. So a town not too far away from Caen that I went to was Bayeux, which is, of course, home of the famous Bayeux Tapestry. And uh, a little bit about the Bayeux Tapestry, it was made uh, shortly after the Battle of Hastings um, to basically commemorate what happened there and the victory of William over Harold and how William in, uh, conquered England and took the throne. And so it basically tells the story of the Norman conquest and the battles and, and uh, their trip across the sea and then the final battle where Harold is killed and uh, William can take the throne. And this was created not long after the actual battle of 1066. And so it's extremely old and it's kind of just crazy. Um, okay, so I did go see it. In case you're wondering, I'm not just telling you about it. I was there! I saw the tapestry! Which is not technically really a tapestry because it's not hanging, it's a long, it's like a 70 meter long strip of fabric that has been embroidered with this, these great scenes of all of these, this story that's being told from one end of it to the other in these panels that show you each scene of what's happening. So, no, it's technically not a tapestry, it's an embroidery. So the Bayou Embroidery, which does not have the same ring to it, was spectacular. It's in such good shape for something that's like almost a thousand years old. And uh, 
Yeah, it was really cool. What I liked about the um, display where they have it, it's just very simple. You get in a line, it's in a dark room, and the tapestry is there behind glass, and you just follow, uh, you walk in, in line around the tapestry from the beginning to the end. You have a little recorder headset, kind of, that you hold up to your ear, and as you're walking by each panel, it's telling you the story of what is happening in the tapestry. Slash embroidery. So you get a play-by-play of the story that the tapestry is telling, which is really cool because I don't think if I had that, I may not have really realized what all was going on. (laughs) And so uh, it was just really cool to see and it was amazing being that close to such a famous piece of old, old history telling the story of this fantastic time and uh, I was really, really, really impressed by it. Oh, and the other cool thing about the Bayeux Tapestry is uh, when the battle took place in 1066, October 14th, apparently, or sometime one of the days leading up to it, uh, there was an event in the sky which was recorded and which was included in the tapestry. And that event, which we actually just uh, enjoyed again, uh, not too long ago, was the uh, presence of Halley's Comet in the sky. Isn't that really cool? So when this was taking place during the Norman Conquest that this tapestry is telling the story of, they saw Halley's Comet in the sky and it was recorded. They actually embroidered the comet into the tapestry in the sky and everyone's like, oh hey, look at that. Uh, and then, lo and behold, we just had the Halley's Comet back in our sky not too long ago. So that's just the crazy event that uh, was documented through this period by the telling of the story on the tapestry. And I thought that was really super neat. So if you are in northern France, in Normandy, go to Bayeux and see the embroidery tapestry whatever it is. Okay, so enough about Middle Ages history. Uh, Let's talk about me. No. (laughs) Uh, If you were interested in me, uh, my trip, that is, uh, we didn't just do all of the old history. We also, of course, went to Normandy to uh, see the D-Day beaches. When I found out I was going to France, I was very excited at the opportunity to go to the D-Day beaches in Normandy. Um, just because it's such an important part of military history, World War II history, for not just France, but for America and Canada and Britain and uh, Germany and, of course, such a powerful, humongous, humongous event in our history. Uh, I was just really, really glad that I could go and pay my respects and see what remains of that event uh, at that time and place now. So... We went to Caen and Bayeux, and then we drove up the coast of France. Uh, We rented a car and went to the D-Day beaches, um, the National American Cemetery, the German Cemetery, and then up to the town of St. Mary Glees. We stayed overnight nearby St. Mary Glees. We had a little bit of a snafu. Um, Didn't really rent a hotel for that night. So we kind of got stuck out in the middle of nowhere in cow country <laughs> outside of St. Mary Glees, uh, waiting, trying to find a hotel or a bed and breakfast, but we could not. And so some very, very nice French woman 
offered to let us stay in her sister's half under construction apartment um, because she was out of town. <laughs> and she was renovating the place to turn it into a gîte, which is kind of like a bed and breakfast in France. Um, not quite, uh, it's kind of more of you're on your own, just is just a place for you to stay. Here's the key. It's like your own apartment, basically. But this one uh, was not quite ready for human occupation. But this very, very lovely woman actually drove us the 20 kilometers to her sister's apartment and gave us the keys and let us stay there overnight. And so whoever, I don't remember your last name, but thank you so, so, so much for letting us do that because it saved our lives. <laughs> uh, anyway, that was a very interesting experience. Northern France, Normandy, it was so gorgeous. The countryside was so beautiful. Just big rolling hills full of pastures of cows grazing and little cottages and the, the ocean to your right. And uh, it was just so lovely and uh, fantastic. So on to the main event. Um, yes, we went to the D-Day beaches. Uh, which ones did we go to? I believe we got to all of them except Sword Beach, I want to say. Uh, we went as far as Juneau, and then we went over from Juneau to Gold to Omaha uh, to Pointe du Hoc, and then to Utah Beach. And if you don't know much about... Okay, well, I guess let's talk about the D-Day invasion. <laughs> okay, here's your background. So, well, let's see. France fell under German control in 1940, and so during the occupation during that period... Uh, Britain was a little overwhelmed. Uh, they had to evacuate France out of Dunkirk in 1940, which was a pretty humongously awful thing. And they really didn't have the forces to go into France and expel the Germans at that point. So for a couple of years, you know, the U.S. got involved in the war in 1941. And until 43, all we were in basically the Mediterranean theater of operations in Europe. Uh, flying and fighting in Northern Africa, in Italy, Sicily, um, these places. By the way, that's where my husband's grandfather was flying during this period. If you listen to my episode on Hawaii, you will know he was a World War II pilot, as well as my grandfather, who was at this point flying in the South Pacific. So, yes, Mediterranean theater of operations is going on at that point. France, unfortunately, is under German control, but there's not much we can do about it until things start to wind down in the Mediterranean because we're doing pretty good. And so in 1943, uh, Eisenhower gets together with Winston Churchill and they're kind of like, you know, the sitch in France is not going so well and maybe we need to do something about this. So let's be kind of badass and just invade the entire freaking thing. How about that? Yeah. So this is where they agree uh, to uh, invade France. It's at the Trident Conference in May of 1943. And so they put together a plan to basically launch the largest amphibious landing and invasion in military history. And so it, uh, that is, of course, what we are talking about uh, as far as the D-Day invasions go. They set it all up. It happened on June 6th, 1944, finally, under the uh, codename Operation Overlord. And what it basically amounted to was an amphibious assault on the coast of northern France, 
where a um, couple, many different countries, but most mostly uh, Britain, America, Canada, uh, invaded France to free and liberate France from the German-occupied forces with about 160,000 men. This was, of course, also done with a lot of air support. So there were bombers, planes flying overhead. There were paratroopers, um, air airborne dropping in over Normandy as well. And uh, this was also done in cooperation with the French resistance. So it wasn't, of course, just the naval aspect. There were many other people involved uh, on the ground helping the cause and in the air. Uh, but of course, the naval aspect is pretty overwhelming <laughs> because it was a huge effort. And there was also a big effort to trick the Germans. Uh, before it happened to mislead them, there was a huge operation meant to give them misinformation that would help keep our rival secret, which did a pretty good job of making sure the Germans were surprised when we landed so that they had less organizational capacity to deal with what was happening, which gave us a much better chance of uh, succeeding, which we pretty much did. I mean, I'm not going to tell you the entire history of the D-Day stuff because it's crazy. There's a lot going on. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, we did pretty darn good. Uh, so, well, pretty darn good. I say that. Well, if you consider 10,000 allied casualties with over 4,000 dead, and the promise of many more as they continue to sweep Germany out of France, then uh, pretty good, then sure. Yes, that was pretty good. Um, but anyway, uh, the invasion didn't go off exactly as planned, but it did go well enough to send Germany running out of the coastline and eventually we were able to uh, follow them through Normandy, expel them from Paris in 19, later in 1944, and eventually from Germany. Um, and of course we all know what happens after that. You know, Hitler and Eva in the bunker and then Germany is uh, not doing too well after that. So we win the war and everyone is pretty happy until we find the concentration camps and then we're like, oh, damn. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's weird talking about this stuff like in a really happy, cheerful mood like I usually do because it's just so just god awfully terrible in every way. <sighs> but anyway, I'm not gonna go into too much detail about exactly what happened because it's a pretty complex uh, set of maneuvers, but basically we've got uh, General Eisenhower and General Montgomery leading up the Allies. We've got General Omar Bradley and, and is the head of the American forces during the invasion. They're going up against uh, Rommel, who's in charge of the German forces in uh, Normandy at the time under, of course, Heil Hitler. And... Uh, Poor Rommel <laughs> didn't do too good, so that's that. But anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we saw of these places and the beaches and all of this stuff while we were down there. So some significant towns uh, to the invasion are Aeromanche, Colville-sur-Mer, and Saint-Marie-Glise, and so we went to all of those places, which I will talk about later. The beaches we saw uh, we saw all of them except for Sword Beach, which was primarily a British landing zone. I'm sorry, Sword Beach. I'm sorry. I'm sure you're really beautiful. We just didn't have time. So we went to Juno Beach, which was largely Canadian, followed by Gold, which was largely British, and then followed by the largely American beaches of Omaha and Utah. 
uh, with also a stop at Pointe du Hoc in between, uh, which is definitely a must-see if you're there. Pointe du Hoc is pretty astounding. So my impression of Juno and Gold, which were the first places we went to, was where is everything? There's not much here. They're very um, minimalistic, I'm going to say. Um, there's not a lot of stuff on the shoreline. You're driving by, there's houses, people just live there. And it's, there's no resorts, there's no hotels. It's just quiet, very quiet. I was kind of shocked. I went out on the beach just to the east of Aramanche on Gold Beach. And there's, you can still see the remains of some of the German fortifications on the coastline and in the water. But there's a, some of that, but not too much. And then there's nobody really there. Although the, gosh, the beaches were gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful, long, empty beaches. Just really beautiful waters. Um, and the, there's a lot of um, cliffs on the coast there. Limestone cliffs, which were really dramatic and beautiful. I mean, just beautiful. I was amazed. Uh, but anyway, yeah, my impression was, where is everybody? <laughs> Uh, and that was, of course, only Gold and Juno, and I'm guessing Sword as well. They don't get a lot of attention, basically just because Omaha Beach is known to have been the area of most heavy combat and the hardest um, landing zone. Uh, so you hear a lot about that specific uh, part of the invasion, um, and you hear about Pointe du Hoc. Uh, because that was very dramatic, and the rangers had a very um, hard time taking Pointe du Hoc, or at least scaling the cliffside to get to the top of it. The other three beaches, you don't uh, don't get a lot of glory, even though there were a lot of brave men and women. I found out too, uh, interestingly enough, who were working as medics and ambulance drivers and people who landed at the same time to take care of the troops who were um, in harm's way who did a lot of brave things and uh, took the beaches for the Allies and drove the Germans back uh, in those places too. So, good for you guys. Uh, I did, of course, notice it got a lot busier once we got to Omaha because that is where the National American Cemetery is. It's actually right above Omaha Beach. So, if you go there, uh, you can... It's very, very busy, I imagine, most of the year because tourists from all over Europe... England and America come to the cemetery there because, 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 because of the wonderful way it looks over Omaha. It's very dramatic. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it's a really great monument to the American men who died in not just D-Day, but the uh, push out of France. So it was a really well-done cemetery, the monument to the soldiers uh, of war was really beautiful and uh, don't have much else to say about that. It was really nice, so if you're there, go see it. It's very touching. It's very reminiscent of Arlington if you've ever been to Arlington. Uh, so yeah, just kind of like that, very similar layout, except it's over the water, which is beautiful. And then I walked down to Omaha Beach from the cemetery and there weren't many people in Omaha Beach there. I was surprised. Omaha is known because, well, okay, watch Saving Private Ryan, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Oh, God, that movie. Maybe don't watch it. It's very upsetting. But if you watch the D-Day part, invasion part of Saving Private Ryan, you will see a very good representation of what the uh, 
soldiers landing on Omaha were facing. It was very heavily guarded by the Germans. They had fortifications up on the hill above the beachhead, and so the uh, soldiers landing on Omaha, which were largely American, like I said, were just under incredible bombardment from German artillery and uh, short-range fire, and it was uh, just a terrible, terrible slaughter. And despite this, they pushed through and they got up the hill to the heights and they pushed the Germans back, which is just absolutely amazing to me, the amount of bravery that goes into that um, effort. And God, just astounding. So, yeah, not much actually on Omaha Beach, I was surprised. Um, it's just there. It's just very weird to me. It's just sitting there and it's pristine and it's beautiful and there are people on holiday who are on the beach with their kids running around and I was just like, wow, it was just uh, overwhelming. So after Omaha, we went to Pointe du Hoc and Pointe du Hoc is very interesting if you read up about it, of course. Pointe du Hoc is on a cliffside and so it's in this very interesting situation between o Utah and Omaha and it was very hard to take. There are about 200 rangers who had to scale this like 100 foot cliff with grappling hooks and ropes and ladders to get to the top of it where the Germans had set up this huge gun battery. And so luckily for them, they were a little behind schedule and I think, and the Germans found out they were coming. And so by the time they got to the top of the cliff, the Germans had basically already withdrawn and were on the run. So luckily there wasn't that much uh, facing them once they got up there and they were able to take the heights and to disable all of the guns or a lot of the guns. Uh, but it was a very, it's a, it was a very harrowing um, tale of them taking Pointe du Hoc anyway. And so uh, the landscape up there is just amazing. There's a lot of German batteries and encampments set up there. And so you can go in all of them. You can see exactly what the landscape looked like in 1944. And the entire landscape is completely destroyed because of the bombings. And so there are craters everywhere. All, the entire surface of Pointe du Hoc is just crater upon crater upon crater. It's just crazy. So yes, that was really, really cool to see. And then of course, after Pointe du Hoc is Omaha Beach. And should I say that right? No, Utah Beach. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I went to Omaha already. Utah is afterwards. And that is where you have, there is a big memorial uh, there and there's a museum at Utah. So there were a lot of tourists there as well And I found Utah to be the most interesting because it's not a huge cliff leading up from the beach um, So there isn't you don't have that dramatic landscape, but the shoreline is covered the entire way with German batteries and gun lofts and it's just one after the other, after the other, after the other. They were set up just across that entire way. It was very heavily defended. And so it's just a really interesting landscape up there. It's very quiet. And you're just in like the back of somebody's farmlands. And there's like this little cute little cabin right next to you. But, and yet there's uh, these German bunkers and gun nests everywhere. It's very weird and eerie. Ugh. But anyway, Utah was very interesting. 
and the memorial there, the memorials were very good. I liked the main memorial because it's built on top of the German bunker that they took possession of um, right after they took Utah Beach, and they set up the command to help coordinate the entire D-Day um, assault after they landed inside of this German bunker that they had just taken. And they turned that into the memorial at Utah Beach, which I thought was really neat. Yeah, so those are the beaches. Uh, the other thing I will mention is when we went to the German cemetery, the Lacombe uh, German War Cemetery, that is, I don't think that's the only German cemetery, but it is the biggest one, and it's very nearby to Pointe du Hoc, so it's the one that most people go to. When I say most people, I don't mean most people who come to Normandy to see the D-Day sites, uh, because I don't think the majority of people do go to the German cemetery there. I think it's kind of something that's just starting to happen. Of course, this is not too far away from the actual events in the grand scheme of history, and so... I don't think there's a lot of people who are really ready yet to deal with um, the emotional after effects of the war um, on the German perspective. So there's a lot of people I don't who I think will definitely go to the American cemetery, but who still have a hard time talking about the German side of things. And this is something that I think they're trying to change in the area, which I thought was really nice um, at the. We went to the Museum of Debarkment in Caen, and this was something that we noticed for sure that that was something they were making a, a real effort to do, was to try and tell the German side of the story as well, not to glorify it, but just to tell the story, um, as well as that of German resistance, French resistance. Um, there was many parts of this of this conflict that don't get spoken about very much. We tend to focus only on what happened to the good guys. And so uh, I think it's good that they're starting to try and heal, I think, and move on and find a way to pay respect to the Germans, despite how, you know, what was going on and how the war turned out and uh, what they were doing. <laughs> so anyway, I thought the German cemetery was actually quite well done. It was a very somber place, much more somber, I felt, than the American cemetery. There were so many fewer people there to begin with, actually. So you came in, and there's a big wall. It's behind this big wall, and there's this very odd feeling. It almost feels like some type of Neolithic burial ground. There's a huge burial mound in the middle of the cemetery, and it's surrounded on all sides by a bunch of just very plain little stones on the ground, flat stones with the names and dates of the dead on them, and then there are crosses um, at different intervals throughout the cemetery. And it doesn't feel huge, but it actually is much bigger than the American cemetery. Uh, there are only about 9,000 people buried in the American cemetery there, and in the German cemetery at Lacombe, there are 21,000 people buried, German soldiers. So that was a little bit overwhelming going into it. It's interesting, and I would go, no matter what you think of uh, the Germans in the war, there are people just like you and me. And so I'm glad that there are people who go to pay their respects to them. I liked, uh, my mother-in-law and I liked what they had written on the wall as you walk into the cemetery. It says, um, until 1947, this was an American cemetery. The remains were exhumed and shipped to the United States. It has been German since 1948 and contains over 21,000 graves. 
With its melancholy rigor, it is a graveyard for soldiers, not all of whom had chosen either the cause or the fight. They too have found rest in our soil of France. And I just, I liked how they said that. Yeah, definitely something to see. I was interested to see Germans there. There were actually quite a few Germans that I noticed there. It was kind of touching. The big burial mound in the middle of the cemetery has a lot of unknown soldiers in it. And there was, a, you know, their flowers sitting out front. And I saw a German man leaning down to explain to his little daughter, you know, what's going on and, and why it's here and what the purpose is of them being here and uh, paying respects. So I thought that was really cool. Anyway, what I didn't think was cool, if you go to the visitor center at the German cemetery, is the way that it is put together and laid out is not a good information center. Sorry if you run the information center at the Lacombe German Cemetery, but it's a little bit haphazard and there's like displays put up on easels, plasterboard, or it's like a, it feels like you're in like a elementary science fair, the way that all of the displays are put up. And I just didn't think it was done very well. And I, th I would like to see that change. But anyway, I think the fact that they were trying to focus in there and in the museums that I went to on reconciliation between French and Germans and allies and Germans and going forward in the future in peace was a very good thing. So good job at least on that if you couldn't get the dang displays in the information center right. So that's the German cemetery. And then I know I've been talking about uh, Normandy for quite a while. So the only other thing I'll mention is that this, the town of St. Mary Glees was very nice and very cute and it's a very interesting part of the story because that was basically the first town that was liberated by the Allies due to the efforts of the airborne, the 82nd Airborne that landed in uh, near St. Mary Glees and who were able to uh, push the Germans out of the town and take it for the Allies. And of course if you're in St. Mary Glees you have to go to the cathedral that has a full life-size reconstruction of the paratrooper who got stuck on the top of the church as he was parachuting into town. <laughs> His name was John Steele. Yes, he's in the movie The Longest Day. And yes, they have a full-size, like, he looks like a big G.I. Joe doll of this guy. Who is, uh, whose parachute got stuck on the church steeple and who was uh, caught and stuck hanging off of the church for quite some time before they were able to get him down. <laughs> but he survived. Good for you, Mr. Steele. And uh, that's a very interesting story and it's a very uh, cool town and the church was beautiful. And the church actually has two stained glass windows that they put in that were specifically dedicated to the paratroopers that are both extremely beautiful and touching and that honor their memory. So that was St. Mary Glees. And that was basically my trip. I know the one thing my mother-in-law would want me to mention, and the thing that I found interesting too, she has been coming to France her entire life. She was born in Paris, and she's a French teacher. And she has been coming to uh, France, uh, she's been to Normandy many times, and Something struck her this specific visit that was very different from all of her previous visits. We were there about three mo two months after the 70th anniversary of D-Day. Um, so we were there in late August. D-Day happened on, in June. So 
uh, the 70th anniversary was kind of a big deal. They had, you know, oh, Barack Obama was recently there. There were huge ceremonies. Uh, and, uh, of course, veterans came back for those ceremonies. And it was a very big uh, thing for the region. And so what we noticed when we were there was all of the pro-U.S. sentiment and uh, support, which she said has not traditionally been a feature of the region. <laughs> Whereas in the past, you know, maybe, I'm not saying that the people of Normandy aren't welcoming, but she said she's never felt uh, particularly supported or welcomed, you know, as an American coming there to see the D-Day beaches. But this time, we were greeted in every town, in every window, by American flags and British flags, and uh, signs saying, welcome to our liberators, thank you for saving us, welcome back veterans, uh, 70th anniversary, all of these things, um, which were obviously still tied to the events that were taking place in June of this year to honor everyone who was involved in the effort and uh, D-Day and to remember them. So uh, we also just felt in general uh, that there were people still very much uh, excited to have us there and to celebrate the English and the Americans and the Canadians and everyone who came 70 years ago to free them from the Germans, and um, she just thought, she was just really overwhelmed by that response and by the sentiment that we felt coming from all of those fantastic northern French. So I guess I just wanted to add that in quickly that um, I think it was very interesting and very special to be there this year of all years uh, after the 70th anniversary. And in general, I was extremely glad to be able to go at all and it was a really amazing experience thank you to my mother-in-law for taking me and i hope to get back sometime with my family because i know that they would value that experience um tremendously so wow i think that's that's about all i had for you guys on normandy i'm sorry my throat's getting sore because i've been talking for so long you guys like forever i'm getting all gravelly Ugh. The trials of voiceovers. So I'm going to just skedaddle. Uh, remember, you can always email me with questions, comments, uh, or anything you want to add at guide to getting dirty at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at strugglingarc, and you can also follow my Tumblr blog at thestrugglingarchaeologist.tumblr.com. And then you can, of course, follow my actual blog at www.jennifermcnibbon.com. Oh my gosh. Whew, it's too much social media for me to keep track of. Sorry. Ugh. And I know I haven't been that good this month on social media, so I will try to bump my presence up coming up here in the future. I'm just busy. I don't know. Life. You know how it is. Uh, but anyway, I'll try and make sure that I am always there to uh, answer you guys if you have any questions or comments about the show. And I'll try to keep entertaining you with my witticism and brains and all of that on the blogs and uh, Tumblr and Twitter. So that's all for now. And if you think I've forgotten that I did promise you to sing La Vie à Rose in French on my next episode, I have not. And so I will leave you with the Francais 
version of the fantastic Edith Piaf, La Vie en Rose. So thank you for tuning in to episode 19 of The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. My name is Jenny. Thank you ever so much for listening. You guys are absolutely wonderful, and I love you, and I'm sending you kisses and puppies. So, uh, okay, that was weird. Sorry, I didn't, I, I took it too weird with the kissing and the puppies. So, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stay now, and uh, I'm gonna forget that that awkward thing just happened. So, bye guys, we'll see you next time for episode 20! Alors je suis en moi